This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Yes, that would be me, your host of what we have to admit is not America's best weekly radio program. We say that, of course, based on a statistical argument. For our part, we're trying to make it the best damn radio program we know how to put together. And uh, speaking of other weekly radio programs, we want to thank Richard Estes, whose excellent program, Speaking in Tongues, comes to you every Fridays at 5 o'clock here on KDVS, whom we want to thank for, again, bringing the host of this program on his program last week to talk about stuff. What I wish we'd had more time to talk about in his program, which we may have time to talk about in a future program of ours, is the subject of doctors and unionization. After seeing how physicians and nurses have been uh, divided and conquered by corporate weasels over the past couple decades, I think it's high time doctors organized. Richard knows quite a bit about uh, labor politics, so I hope uh, we'll delve into that some in the future. As for today, I want to note that today's program here at Radio Parallax will be devoted to catching up the volume of material that piles up for the production of this show we have to do this about once a month. This would probably be a good time to mention that next week's program will constitute our annual Pledge Drive show here at KDVS. Once a year, this station has to ask for your help, dear listener, in order for you to continue to receive the programming which you presumably value so much. And although we know times are tough, we certainly do count on you to chip in next week and show the love. And also, show us the money. In all seriousness, please, do what you can to help. We are counting on you. We like to start off each program with On This Date in History, and we will do that, but during this week in history, some really momentous things took place. April 10th marks the 200th anniversary of the explosion of Mount Tambora in Indonesia. It's believed to be the largest such explosion in the past two millennia. Before it blew up, Tambora was as tall as Mount Shasta, 14,100 feet. After it got done blowing up, it was 9,300 feet high. The top 4,300 feet of the mountain was converted into 38 cubic miles of ash and dust. This disruption called global climate anomalies around the world. 1816 became known as the year without a summer because of the effect on North American and European weather. Should be noted that temperatures around the world, at least on land, dropped about 2 degrees Celsius. We're now facing a similar change in the opposite direction, thanks to global warming. So actually, we should be hoping for some volcanic explosions, maybe not quite as large as this one, to help us with that problem. Back in 1992, when Mount Pinatubo blew up in the Philippines... It put a couple-year dent in that uh, rise in global temperatures, thanks to all the sulfur dioxide and particulate matter shoved up into the stratosphere. So you know we got to be in trouble when we're hoping for volcanic explosions. And on April 14th in 1865, 150 years ago this week, Abraham Lincoln was shot by John Wilkes Booth. He died the following morning. It was acknowledged back at the time that Lincoln had fallen... Victim to a conspiracy. 
This may be due in part to the fact that unlike what happened 99 years later, no Warren Commission was appointed to look into the assassination of President Lincoln. What's poignant for this correspondent about uh, the assassination of Lincoln is I remember walking into my grandmother's room where the TV was and her mentioning that it had been 100 years earlier that Lincoln had been assassinated. And yes, it gives me pause that I can remember with great clarity a third of the way back to 150 years ago. And speaking of the 1800s, and how's that for a segue, we do want to note a slight correction. We thought with the passing of the world's oldest person in Japan uh, earlier this month, or was it last month, I forget, um, that that took the last of the people born in the 1800s, but, but this was incorrect. There are actually five people in the United States alone who were born in 1899. We wish every single one of them continued good health. Mr. McMillan adds his hope that they're all partying like it's 1899. But at any rate, getting back to on this date in history, which in our case today is the 16th of April. No, it was on April 16th in the year 1178 BC that a total eclipse occurred over the Mediterranean. It's perhaps the one mentioned in Homer's Odyssey. On April 16th in 1943 in Basel, Switzerland, chemist Albert Hoffman accidentally consumed LSD-25, a synthetic drug he had created. Inadvertently, Albert Hoffman became the world's first LSD tripper. Picture yourself in a boat on a river with tangerine trees and marmalade sky. Our quote of the day comes from Confucius, who said, The gentleman understands what is moral. The small man understands what is profitable. Our quote of the day comes from Albert Einstein, who said, Try not to become a person of success, but rather try to become a person of value. We thank the week for reminding us of both of those. Our joke of the day is not a conventional joke, but rather another reference to the late, great Stan Freeberg. His obituaries note that Freeberg committed the ad industry's greatest heresy, lampooning the deficiencies of a paying client's own products. Freeberg took on Pacific Airlines as a client and based advertisements on people's fear of flying. He told the people in ads that even the pilots were afraid of flying. And as part of the campaign, flight attendants passed out survival kits that included security blankets, a lucky rabbit's foot, and fortune cookies bearing the slogan, It could be worse. Our good news item for today's program is the fact that apparently Lake Tahoe's water clarity as of last year was the best in more than a decade, which is being attributed to our drought in California. Yes, with less rain to wash nutrients into the lake, there's been less algae growth, making the lake just a bit clearer. For our anecdote, or approximations of an anecdote, we have the following. Evidently, a much maligned statue of Lucille Ball is set to get a facelift after it drew worldwide attention as Scary Lucy. Yes, evidently, Celeron, New York, put up a bronze statue dedicated to the TV actress. Reportedly, the statue terrified the local populace. Critics said the life-size bronze, which shows a grimacing, wide-eyed ball holding out a spoonful of medicine to a zombie from the TV show The Walking Dead, said one resident, it doesn't look human, and at nighttime, it's even scarier. Here's the part I like the best. Sculptor David Pollan admits his work is unsettling. 
and he said he was willing to create a new statue for free. The mayor of the village said he didn't want Pollen to redo the work, and Pollen said he was fine with that decision. Now, as far as we see it here at Radio Parallax, the sculptor's mistake was not creating a statue for use in front of the arena here in Sacramento. Because apparently, for that sort of artwork, there are no standards. And finally, our stat of today's program is that the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria and its supporters produced as many as 90,000 tweets and other social media posts every day. According to the New York Times, the U.S. State Department is now assigning 80 people to counter ISIS's propaganda on Twitter and Facebook. Although assigning 80 people to do this seems a bit surprising, this correspondent is prepared to believe that figure, having butted heads with people whose job online appears to have been to, well, let's just say, put out the government line. And that's all I'm going to say about that. I think instead we're going to jump right into the good, the bad, and the ugly. And in fact, we have the week to thank for all three of these items on today's program. First is a great segue from our last item. We would judge it a good week last week for government propagandist with the news that the federal government has spent $5 million since 2011 on an anti-smoking program that's aimed primarily at hipsters. This program portrays smoking as neoconservative and encourages young adults to consider styling your sweet mustache or listening to music no one else has heard of rather than lighting up. Whether this program has, it, has had any effect on the DJs here at this station, we don't know. To which we hasten to add, there is an upside to playing music that no one else has heard of. Continuing along, it was a bad week last week for Order in the Court, after California's Commission on Judicial Performance revealed that it disciplined 43 judges last year, including two judges who had sex with women in their chambers and a traffic judge who had his clerk hear cases and impose sentences. And finally, it was an ugly week last week for the Easter Bunny with the news that, yes, right here in Sacramento, an Easter egg hunt descended into chaos observed around the world when parents began pushing and cursing other children as they helped their own kids grab the eggs hidden on the Capitol Mall. One mom was quoted as saying, it was horrible. And by all accounts, it apparently was. Yes, evidently, Blue Heart International, a year-old charity devoted to ending the supposed worldwide epidemic of human trafficking, which for sure has some merit anyway, intended to break the world's Easter egg hunt record set in 2007 in Florida when 501,000 plastic eggs were put out. The event in Sacramento featured a reported 517,000 eggs. Though to the Sacramento Bee editors, the only record it broke was for incompetence and bad parental behavior. The main problem seems to be that Blue Heart International failed to produce the 300 volunteers and security apparatus it had promised to help manage the crowd of 20,000. 
Instead, Blueheart provided exactly 12 guards, which the B notes probably correctly isn't even enough to manage some family Easter dinners. And just to add more insult to more injury, apparently the eggs arrived too late for the Guinness World Records people to be able to certify the event as having broken the record. Here comes Peter All right, let's do some follow-up. We mentioned, um, I don't know, last year, I think, the fact that they'd found the lost footage of Orson Welles' first efforts at a cinematographer. This was the print of Too Much Johnson. And frankly, we're covering this story due to our admiration of the title of this particular piece of film. Turns out that the 10 reels of uh, 35-millimeter nitrate uh, was edited partly by Welles, at least a seven-minute segment, but uh, the most, most of the rest of it is just sort of some raw footage that um, really is of interest only to film historians. We were voicing how we felt bad because we had been unable to attend a screening of this particular bit of celluloid, but, uh, well, now, now, we don't, now we don't feel so bad. We do continue to hold to the opinion, as do many others, that Orson Welles was, in fact, a genius. Of course, that opinion, like all those heard in this program, does not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the University of California. Now, I think I mentioned on this program a few weeks back that I chanced upon the movie Minority Report, which I found vaguely reminiscent of Blade Runner, which turned out to be not surprising because the two works had the same author, Philip K. Dick. While Minority Report has its moments, it suffers from the fact that it was directed by Steven Spielberg, in my opinion. And uh, coincidentally, it turns out that Blade Runner is being reissued now as uh, they're talking about making a sequel. And uh, in a case of life imitating art, we would go from sci-fi to the world of Wall Street with this item. Apparently, banks on Wall Street are taking a page out of Minority Report, at least according to Bloomberg.com. They're noting that firms like J.P. Morgan Chase are experimenting with computer algorithms that, quote, identify rogue employees before they go astray, unquote. J.P. Morgan, which has racked up $36 billion with a B in legal bills since the financial crisis, partly because of employees who rigged markets, cheated clients, and aided criminals, is testing preventative software that will monitor emails, chats, and dozens of other data points, all in an attempt to find bad apples before they commit crimes. Mr. McMillan is skeptical, noting that it appears these firms actually select for the bad apples. But reportedly, similar efforts are in progress throughout Wall Street. Bloomberg quotes Tim Estes, a software executive whose clients include Goldman Sachs, as saying, we're taking technology that was built for counterterrorism. Adding, if you want to be proactive, you have to get people before they act. Now we have to admit, we've expressed some skepticism about the art of psychiatry on this program, but the art of computer algorithm psychiatry, well, that's something that's really tough to have a lot of confidence in. Speaking of that, I want to quote from a piece that I've been saving for about a year and a half. Opinion piece for New Scientist magazine by Sina Fazel, talking about how, uh, how people with a history of violence reoffend and how the statistical tools that claim to provide answers for that, well, as we might guess, they're, they're flawed. Now, of course, society has a vested interest in knowing whether people behind bars are going to reoffend. 
This piece notes that it was evident that clinicians were failing to accurately predict the risk of violence in psychiatric patients back in the 1980s that caused them to use statistics to try and assess the chance of repeat offending. In a similar way, car insurers rate drivers. So checklists were devised that scored factors such as age at first arrest. And in the mid-1990s, Canadian researchers went beyond this actuarial rep- approach and developed ways to identify risk they argued were more tailored to offenders with mental disorders. These, quote, structured clinical judgment, unquote, methods involved clinical judgment and a checklist. It's estimated that here in the U.S., two-thirds of the decisions regarding paroles include these methods. And up to a few years ago, some people thought they were doing a good job. I don't know who, but some people... But by 2008, there were 40 systematic reviews and meta-analyses of the performance of these approaches, all of which found evidence that the assessments worked well. But I gather that since uh, something like two-thirds of the decisions as to whether somebody would be a repeat offender have been shown to be wrong, more research was done, including that by the author of this piece, Sina Fazel. And uh, her team concluded that these screenings work work okay for low-risk offenders. She felt these were accurate enough to broadly identify those who could benefit from additional interventions, but not accurate enough to make decisions about sentencing, release, or preventative detention. (laughs) Yeah, other than that, it worked pretty well. But in September of 2013, a study by researchers at the Queen Mary University of London, based on a group of released high-risk prisoners in England and Wales, found that the predictive accuracy of the three widely used assessment tools was no better than chance for psychopathic offenders. Such people constitute about 10% of the prison population, but repeat offend at disproportionately high rates and more seriously. Obviously, we have a long way to go in this area. There's been a lot in the news about the agreement over Iran's nuclear program of late. Mr. Millen, I believe you have a sound clip from some of the congressional Republican leadership on this. And uh, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu had some things to say also. And one-upping even Benjamin Netanyahu and congressional Republicans was the Wall Street Journal, whose editorial pages frequently include writing that appears to be from the deranged. In this case, a Brett Stevens writing in the WSJ said, Targeted military action against Iran's nuclear facilities is a far better option, even with all the unforeseen consequences that might, that might entail. This prompted Fareed Zachariah in the Washington Post to ask, Can you be serious? Iran has many nuclear facilities spread across the country, some close to population centers. To destroy them, the U.S. would have to drop hundreds of highly explosive bombs, killing civilians and causing Iranians to rally around the regime. Iran would respond through its terrorist proxies in the region and perhaps in the U.S. It would then invoke the need for a deterrent against future attacks and launch a full-scale attempt to build a bomb. Attacking Iran is likely to backfire in every possible way. We haven't always agreed with Mr. Zachariah, but man, we're with him on this one. That is just... Commenting about some of this political grandstanding... New scientists noted that it was uh, with bemusement that a lot of people reacted to 47 U.S. senators, Republicans all, posting a, quote, open letter, unquote, to Iran last month. 
It advised the country that it was wasting its time hammering out a deal to limit its nuclear activities with U.S. President Barack Obama and five other leaders. Without the approval of Congress, they wrote, it would be a mere executive agreement that Congress could change or a future president could nullify at will. Noted the magazine, as legal experts stampeded to point out, none of that is true. Magazine further noted, many of these senators are lawyers. They all employ them. Surely they knew that. Sadly, for news scientist readers and other members of what senior advisors to Republican President George W. Bush dismissively and disparagingly called the reality-based community, if you want to believe something badly enough, facts just get in the way. They note also that a week later, 30 senators sent a letter to Obama's health and agricultural secretaries concerned with the scientific integrity of a committee that they said had recommended the removal of lean meat from U.S. dietary advice. The Center for Science and the Public Interest then noted the senators must not have read much past page three, since on page four, it clearly states that lean meats can be a part of a healthy dietary pattern. The magazine notes, intriguingly, many of those also signed the Iran letter, and 23 are on a roster of climate deniers. All right, let's go out with some good news from uh, the world of politics, which is hard to come up with sometimes. We're happy to report that at long last, it appears sanity may yet reign in U.S.-Cuban relations. For the first time in 50 years, the leader of the U.S. and the leader of Cuba actually sat down and had a meeting. President Obama did so with Cuban President Raul Castro at the Summit of the Americas last week. And this week, President Barack Obama announced that he will remove Cuba from the U.S. list of state sponsors of terrorism. And I do know things are changing in the world when friends in Cuba can actually take a photo, put it in their phone, and send it to me. This is, this is quite a change from uh, <laughs> some letters I found uh, uh, last week that had been mailed from Cuba, well, back in the 90s, but had obviously been opened and then glued back shut again. In one case, the person wielding the glue, and we don't know which end this was done, slopped on a little too much and... <laughs> caused me to receive two letters sent from Cuba, one intended for me and one intended for somebody in Italy. Well, I guess that kind of points the finger of suspicion at Cuban authorities, doesn't it? At any rate, things are changing for the better, and this correspondent does hope to, to get a chance to visit the island sometime in the next year, or at the most two. We do know that things are not going to change overnight, and this following story proves that. Dateline Havana In a sign that the Communist Party may be easing its stranglehold on politics in Cuba, two opposition politicians have managed to win spots on the ballot in Havana's upcoming municipal elections. But the party isn't allowing them a free hand in campaigning. Reportedly, Hildebrando Chaviano, age 65, and Uniel Lopez, 26, said their official candidate biographies had been changed to say that they have ties to counter-revolutionaries funded from abroad. In Chaviano's case, all his educational achievements were deleted except for a single internet course he took at the U.S. diplomatic mission. Said Chaviano, all that's left is for them to put wanted across the page. And of course, by closing with this piece in the segment, this allows a rare callback opportunity to go back to our previous piece on Lucille Ball. And for our bumper music, use Desi Arnaz's rendition of Babalu. Babalu. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. Like we got lots more, so stick around. 
Pensando lo velorio y qué le hacemos a Babalú. Dame 17 velas, va a ponerlo en cruz. Y dame un cabo de tabaco, bañé, bañé, y un jarrito de aguardiente. Y dame un poco de dinero.